Turn back then to page 1211, I think, and it's Hebrews 13, which I've specially chosen. I don't know whether you got the, mis- the mistake somewhere down the line. Okay, Hebrews 13, verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city which is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do God good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that will be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And just a prayer. Father, as we come to this uh, wonderful chapter and the wonderful truth of our Lord Jesus the same yesterday, today and forever, Help us to understand its relevance for us today. Give us new encouragement and new challenge as we start a new year. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a time, of course, when people give their New Year message. The Prime Minister does it on the blog, whatever they happen to be. I've never found a blog yet. Uh, The Archbishop does it on television, and the old vicar of Trafalgar comes back uh, to give a New Year message from his, uh, one of his favourite chapters. When uh, Paul asked me, could I preach tonight, he gave me 
carte blanche for any part of the Bible. So quickly I turn to Hebrews 13. It's a tremendous chapter, not only because it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, great though that truth is, but also because it challenges us to go to him. Did you see that phrase? Outside the camp, Hebrews 13, 13. Go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For the same Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, and doesn't change as the years change, is the one who went outside the camp and shed his blood, and we are meant to follow him. Did you notice in that chapter, that little phrase in verse 3, we'll see it again in context in a moment, to remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. I was handed this afternoon a very relevant prayer note from Afghanistan, where one uh, Christian who was converted from Islam to Christ will almost certainly, while I preach this sermon, receive the death penalty. And I think we just need to keep these things in mind. Just listen to this. In Mazar, a northern city, our, our, another brother, Shoeb, was arrested in late October. Friends have been working hard for his release as well. Our team knows this brother well, and we're able to talk with him by phone today. That was Friday night. Shoab learned that his mother had recent, has recently died. He was sad, saying his mother died both in spirit and in body. He was thankful to be able to discuss this with fellow believers. He stated that he was the same, Shoab, as the one who went into prison, meaning his faith remains strong. We told him that many around the world were praying specifically for his release and that we were certain that he was not alone. Shoab said that he knew that. He said that his final trial is Monday, January the 3rd, Sunday night, Western time. Now. Now. He is quite certain that they will give him the death penalty. At his last court appearance, the judge gave him one final week to renounce his faith. Otherwise, he will be hanged or killed for his faith. Shoab stated that he was completely, his life was completely given into the hands of Jesus. He also said he was so happy for the fight, the spiritual fight. Without my faith, I would not be able to live. Does that resonate with you? How do you empathize with the man who's in prison as if you're in prison with him when it's that? I think apart from the fact we just pray for him, and we pray for Christians in Afghanistan who turn to Christ, and there are many turned from Islam to Christ, that they'll have courage to stand firm, that there may be for some release, but that they'll have the grace. Do you notice what he wanted to pray for? Not primarily for his release, but that he would be faithful to the end. And here we are at the beginning of a new year in comfort and ease. And there are two things I think immediately I respond when I get that newsletter. Two things I want to say. First of all, I just want to say to you, please, don't be naive about some of the evils of, of militant Islam. We live in a world where we love to try to make everybody equal and they're all equal uh, fanatics on all sides. It's a, it's a different world. I want you to waken up to that different world. And if you think there's any resemblance between a man who in a few hours might be hanged for standing true to Jesus and those who in terrorist madness blow themselves up to kill others, 
If you think there's any relationship, you're living in a mad world of your own. One is a martyr standing firm for Jesus and is willing to give his life. Another, brainwashed, kills people and kills himself at the same time. There is not the slightest resemblance. Please don't be naive. Wake up. And secondly, can I say to you, one other thing we can do is to try to get some of our own world and its problems into perspective as Christians. Sometimes when we hear the challenge, I'm going to give you a challenge from Hebrews 13 tonight. And if you're here this morning, as Marge and I were in the congregation this morning, when Andrew reminded us from Luke chapter 14 of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, the standards he takes, sometimes when we see these things, we think it's hard. God expects a bit of sacrifice of time, a willingness to sacrifice our money and forget about our comforts and think of the gospel as a priority. And we think sometimes we're hard done to. And when we read about the standards we're meant to live as Christians in this chapter, and that's not easy, and temptations come. Remember the one who couldn't live without his faith who will, even as we sit here, be given the death penalty almost certainly, are we worthy to follow in their footsteps? I can remember, and little that it is, I can remember being greatly comforted by Hebrews 13, 13, when I was chairman of reform and life was not easy, and the powers that be in the Church of England didn't like what we were standing for. And it was very easy to feel you were outside the camp, or a great encouragement it was, let's go to him outside the camp. I'd rather be with Jesus outside the camp than running around with nominal Christians inside it. And I'd rather have some affinity with a man who prepared in Afghanistan to lay down his life for the faith that we so often take for granted. I was reminded as I prepared this sermon before I got this text this afternoon I was reminded that some time ago I, I was preaching here and Paul was in the congregation, Paul Williams, and I mentioned uh, C.T. Studd, my great picketing hero of a bygone age, who wrote the, the little book called The Chocolate Soldier. And I'd lost my copy and Paul very kindly uh, went on his uh, internet and got me a copy of The Chocolate Soldier. C.T. Studd's The Chocolate Soldier is a marvellous little book. The idea of The Chocolate Soldier is how many Christians are wonderfully militant and keen and, and, and church will say marvellous things but the chocolate soldiers when the chips are down they melt away and C.T. Studs said I'd rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell than just to go around and be a nominal churchgoer with no life and no faith and the challenge of these verses come to me alive because of that man and please remember Shoaib remember his family Remember Christians in, the, in Afghanistan. And let's pray that as we look at these verses in Hebrews 13, and we look at two unchanging things, that we'll have grace to stand firm. Although, uh, Cynthia must have got the wrong chapter. It finished in a rather nice place in Hebrews 11. It finished the point where Moses, where Moses was willing to endure suffering for Christ, even though he lived in the palace of Egypt. Even though Moses could have had all the comforts and ease because he was thought to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He preferred to be one with the people of God though it meant he would be 
he would bear the stigma and he would be a prisoner and a slave. Why were letters to the Hebrews written? It was written to a group of Christians who were Jewish Christians and it was very significant because they lived in an age when in the Roman Empire if you were a Jew and worshipped as a Jew you were kosher. Your religion was allowed. You were okay. There was no persecution. If you're a Christian, then it wasn't okay and you could well be persecuted. Wasn't it tempting if you were a Jewish Christian to stress your Jewishness and to renounce your Christianity and it would be comfort? Wouldn't it be easier for Moses to have decided, why, I'm Pharaoh's daughter, I've got everything I want, rather to realize what he was, that is, a Hebrew slave, and yet that was the future was with him, wouldn't it be easy for Shoah to save his life, to go back to Islam, to renounce his saviour? Wouldn't it be tempting? Do you often say to yourself, what would I do if I were with him? Oh, I do. I'm not sure what courage I would have for that. But I do hope I shall have the courage and I can encourage you on this first Sunday evening in 2011 to have the courage to follow the unchanging standards of Hebrews 13 and to follow the unchanging saviour of Hebrews 13 and to make the unchanging sacrifice of Hebrews 13. In a sense we get it the wrong way around but it's the way the chapter does it. We start with the standards. No, of course, you do not become a Christian by following the Christian standards. You don't earn your way to heaven. On the other hand, these standards do not change. And if I want to be a child of God, the three things that this chapter speaks about must be true of me. First of all, the unchanging standard of charity, verses 1 to 3. Loving each other. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Lovely word. Brotherly love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples. If you love one another, the great mark of the people of God, and specially, verse 2, hospitality, entertain strangers. The story of Abraham, who entertained the angels but thought they were just travelling strangers. Not all strangers you might give hospitality to will turn out to be angels unawares. Some of them... Uh, Very much not so. But it is a challenge to Christians that we demonstrate our charity by hospitality. And especially that in verse 3 about remembering those in prison. I'd prepared this sermon, of course, before I got my little note this afternoon from Afghanistan. It's made all the more relevant since I've got that note. But you see, we keep on being reminded of a persecuted church and people... These prisoners are not just any ordinary prisoners. No, I have no empathy with prisoners who burn their place down because they can't get alcohol at the New Year. Not the slightest empathy. But these prisoners were prisoners who were prisoners of conscience. And the writer is saying to these Hebrew Christians, don't forget. Chapter 10, he's reminded them, once you did stand by them, don't go back. Don't go back to your old religion and and forsake your old friends. Remember, you're a prisoner with them. Can you understand the mind of a person who is willing to face the death penalty?
penalty rather than denounce Jesus. Can you imagine a man for whom it means so much that he would be willing to do that? Can you understand if you read the Barnabas Fund, if you don't get Barnabas Fund thing, I commend it to you, where uh, Patrick Sutdale's preaching this pulpit reminds us of the constant sufferings of Christians in the world because they are Christians. And we prayerfully want to follow them and their footsteps. So we care. The first standard of charity. Second is of purity, verse 4. You see, the idea of charity, there was a time, I've lived long enough now and been in Christian ministry long enough to have been through lots of battles. There was some time ago a great battle about charity or chastity. Uh, and the idea was, if you really were charitable, you didn't worry about all these old-fashioned rules about sexual morality. The Bible doesn't say charity or chastity, but both. And the writer says, look, marriage should be honoured. The marriage bed kept pure. I just saw the other day some, some uh, select committee suddenly decided that actually marriage is a very good thing for the nation. That the sort of idea of uh, marital purity is quite a good idea. Somebody's at last cottoning on to the truth that Scripture makes clear. And though there will be constant change in the world's attitudes to sexuality, as far as Christians are concerned, it is unchanging. That does not change. And alongside it, just in case we can be feeling cushy, look at verse 5. For you see, sexual greed is just another kind of greed. I want it, so I shall get it. And the other kind of greed, keep your lives free from the love of money. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil, as they once sang, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, what it does say. And how easily we get sucked into this world of wanting things. And the Christmas challenge has reminded us of that constantly. And the, the writer of the Hebrews, whoever it happens to be, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that God's provision and God's protection and God's provision should be sufficient. Standards of charity, standards of purity, and standards of loyalty. Three times in these verses, we're reminded to obey our leaders. Verse 7, to remember them. Verse 17, to obey them. Uh, Verse uh, 24, to greet them. to pray for them in verse 18. This sense of loyalty. And it's all too easy for Christians to follow the pattern of the world where loyalty is easily changed. I, 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 I battled with myself whether I would mention from the pulpit today the fact that England had retained the ashes. I, I did ponder whether it was charitable and kind. Uh, I thought Andrew wasn't going to be here tonight. So I... I, I, I anyway, Andrew... With a great sense of unity in the Lord, it's lovely, isn't it, that we can be together. In the, uh, uh. Anyway, there we are. Enough of that. But I, did, I, I couldn't help but notice when watching television shots that the Australian public have all suddenly uh, deserted their team. The stands were virtually empty uh, as England retained the ashes. Uh, now, you may think that's very... I'm being terribly sort of uh, uh, nationalistic. But you see, we English don't get like that. 
Five, uh, four years ago, when we lost five, nothing to Australia, our balmy army were as keen and enthusiastic at the end as they were at the beginning. You see, we stand by our, t- our team in dire straits because we're so used to being in dire straits. <laughs> so we've learned, you see. Perhaps you will learn, and perhaps you'll learn loyalty to your team. That, if anybody wants to press me, has got nothing at all to do with Hebrews, but I couldn't miss uh, the opportunity just to mention. But I do want to point out to you, you move on from this loyalty to leadership, which is very important, to, to move to the other truth of this great chapter. Unchanging standards, loyalty, purity, charity, to the unchanging Savior. It's my loyalty to him that counts for most. Let me just spend a few minutes on that great truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Please never mistranslate that text. It does not say the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. Never, ever. There is no tomorrow with Jesus. He is always the same. That's why you read a bit from Revelation chapter 1. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is always I am, I am. But what kind of Saviour is unchanging? What does it mean to us at the beginning of a new year if I'm going to be loyal to him? Well, it tells me about his work for us and it tells me about his work in us and it tells me about his work through us. It tells me about his work in us. That's what he's talking about in verse 9 onwards. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Leaders come and go. Ideas come and go. But the truth of Christ remains the same and the Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today and forever is the one who suffered outside the city gate, verse 12. He suffered outside the camp. You see, he, in verse 10, he is the altar. We have an altar. You know my theology well enough to know that that up there is not an altar. It's a table. It's a communion table. That's not an altar. An altar was a thing on which you sacrificed animals. And the communion table, according to 662 Book of Common Prayer, should have on it a clean white linen cloth. I don't know what's happened to our clean white linen cloth. But you don't normally put clean white linen cloths on altars. They'd be bloodstained very quickly. And the altar we have is Christ. Do you see the wonderful spectrum here? I just leave it with you to think about it. We have an altar, verse 10, that is Christ. He is the high priest, verse 11. He is the sacrifice, verse 12 and 13. Christ is high priest, Christ is sacrifice, Christ is altar. That's his work for us. And that's why those who die in faith today are following the example of a man who died for faith, who shed his blood that we might live. Sometimes I stand by the uh, Martyrs Memorial in Oxford when I'm there for various reasons. And I see where our reformers shed their blood that we might have the truth of the gospel. And I, I, I say a prayer and I say, Lord, help me to tell the generation of today that these men died for truth. And the people who put them to death would have called themselves Christians. But they died for the preservation of the gospel, the word of God, the truth that, and, that we cherish so much in this church. And Jesus wants us to be prepared to go outside the camp. His work for us we shall always be unashamed of. I find it tragic 
that Lord Carey, ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, has got to make a speech to remind Christians not to be ashamed. I applaud him for making the speech. But why do we have to be told not to be ashamed? Why is it in the culture in which we live, Christians are so frightened of being known to be Christians? Okay, it's all right to be one of the the occasional church-going person, but to dare to believe that we've got the truth, to dare to stand for the faith that we believe, to dare to stand for our moral standards, look on the Christian Institute and website and get involved in what they're trying to do to encourage Christians to stand for what they believe. And George Carey tells us not to be ashamed, quite rightly so. Why should we be ashamed? We're called to bear the stigma, to go to him outside the camp. He died for us, and that truth we should never be ashamed of. When we used to baptize babies and use the words of the old prayer, but we prayed that they be not ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified. How about you in 2011? Will you pray for greater courage to stand up and be counted? And if you think of a man who died for his faith tonight, I hope you will uh, just ask for a bit more courage. His work for us. Secondly, his work in us. That's what the great benediction in verse 20 and 21 talks about. It's the only time the resurrection is mentioned in the epistle of the Hebrews. The epistle of the Hebrews mentions the ascension. That's the great truth. He's the right hand of God. He's supreme at God's right hand. Well, of course, for that to be true, there had to be the glorious resurrection. And God who brought him back from the dead, the prayer is that he will work in us what is pleasing in his sight. His work for us. His work in us by the risen Lord. And finally, his work through us. We come back in verse 15 and 16 to the two sacrifices we must make. There's a unique... These are, there, there are standards that don't change. There's a saviour who never changes. And there's a sacrifice which doesn't change. Sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, verse 15. And the sacrifice of doing good and sharing with others, verse 16. May I ask you to make that a resolution? I have to confess... I haven't made a New Year resolution for years and years and years. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot to be said for it. And if you have made one, I pray that you'll be given grace to keep it. And if you think I ought to make one, just tell me what you think I ought to resolve, and I will resolve very gladly uh, for your sake. Uh, perhaps I should resolve never to mention cricket and Sheffield went to the pulpit ever again. That would be a, a good New Year resolution. But uh, whether you make a resolution or not, if I can suggest to you one thing we might resolve, is that these two sacrifices might be high on the list. Praise and thanksgiving. Does it occur to you, doesn't it seem strange to call praise a sacrifice? Shouldn't it come joyfully and wonderfully? Isn't it a great thrill to praise him? Shouldn't I want to rise every morning to say my prayers and to give thanks to God? But let's face it, it does demand discipline, sacrifice, regular in worship, for all the joy of Christmas, the challenge to make it a regular commitment, and the sacrifice of doing good and sharing with others, doesn't come easily. But it's a challenge. Don't you see how this chapter then goes full circle? If in fact I am 
doing good and helping others, I am reflecting something of my Saviour who gave himself for others, who went about doing good, and who by giving his life on the cross did the greatest good that will ever done in the history of mankind. And what good can I do in 2011? Well, I can share Jesus with them, that's important, sharing with others. And I can make the gospel more readily listened to because I live the kind of life that will demonstrate that Jesus makes a difference. And if we do, as a congregation, show love for one another, that will help people to realize that our living, our Savior is a living Lord who shows his love through us. Truth unchanged, unchanging. The world that is changing outwardly, rapidly. And yet deep down the deepest needs of men and women are as they were when this letter was written to these Hebrew Christians. And the challenge to the Hebrew Christians was quite simple. Either you decide to go on with Jesus or you decide for the sake of comfort and security to pull back. I hope none of us here will draw back. I hope none of us will decide that for 2011 we'll ease up on our Christian commitment and that we'll keep at arm's length all those who are sort of fanatical about it all. The only way the Christian church will ever make inroads in our nation, let alone in our world, is when we take things seriously enough to make people know we mean business about our faith. 2011 is no time and no place for the faint-hearted, the person who loves to sit in a pew from time to time but doesn't want to take it too seriously. Jesus took me so seriously. He went to the cross for me. The least I can do is to take him seriously enough to join him outside the camp, to bear the stigma of being one of those committed people reflecting Jesus. Do you find comfort from Hebrews 13.8? I hope you do. But I hope you also find from Hebrews 13.8 the kind of disturbance that if he is the same Jesus who died on the cross, who is still living and alive and making intercession for us, that I want to be counted in with him, whatever the cost. And therefore, my prayer for you this evening is that you, with me, will dare to go forward. We're going to sing a hymn in a few minutes that I've chosen. Uh, it's a, a great old hymn, crowned with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. Can I just draw your attention as we prepare to sing it in a minute? Can I draw your attention to the fact that there in verse 3, the one we are going to praise, crowned with many crowns, is the one who shows his hands and side those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. My mind has been taken up as I heard that message this afternoon about our brother in Afghanistan. I was reminded of the first ever Christian martyr, Stephen, who is so important in the Christian calendar that he has his birthday next to Jesus' birthday. So close are they 
together. And when Stephen was dying for his faith, when he was given the death penalty, do you remember what he said? He said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And those who know their Bibles well will know it's the only place in Scripture where Jesus is standing in heaven. He's always seated. The place of honour. The right hand of God. His work finished. But once he's seen standing. You know why? He's standing there to welcome Stephen home. The man who cared enough to go the way of the cross. He stand there to welcome Shoag home if the inevitable penalty comes his way. Well, that's not for us. But I look for the day when he'll welcome me home and you home. And meantime, pray that we will not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and bear the stigma outside the camp taking up our cross and following him. Let me pray with you. Father, in some way, this uh, service has been solemnized by what we've heard from Afghanistan. We do pray for our brother there. Because of our natural feeling for him, we would long that there might be an 11th hour reprieve. And yet we feel he doesn't want us to pray that particularly. We pray most of all that he'll stand firm and that something of the vision of Stephen will be granted to him as he stands true and gives his life for you who gave your life for him. And there are many like him and we pray for them and for ourselves that as we go into a world that largely ignores Jesus, that we might be unashamed, that we might offer a sacrifice of praise, putting him first in our lives during this year, that we might offer a sacrifice of doing good and sharing with others, that we might stand true to those ways that the Bible tells us are the right way for Christian people. So help us, dear Father, to follow Jesus each step of the way and as we sing his praise, May we show forth his love and his risen life in all that we say, do, and are day by day. Thank you, Lord, that our Saviour is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we would walk with him all the days of this new year to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name.